Welcome, everybody, to the next version of TransUnion's Extra Credit Podcast, where we seek to provide insights, not push products. As always, co-hosted by Josh Turnbull and myself, Craig Lushnell. So, Allison, welcome, and I think we might be forming a tradition, an annual mid-year update on regulation and policy. Awesome. Thank you. Excited to be here. Now, before we get going, um, some folks may be listening to the podcast for the first time. Can you remind us of the extent of your responsibilities? I'm responsible for all of the federal and state legislative and regulatory activities. So that could mean something as big as the federal agencies. That could mean a regulation coming out of the CFPB, Treasury, um, Department of Labor, or, um, you know, at the state level, that's I'm responsible for managing every law that's passed at the state level that could have an impact on TU's products um, or businesses. And then there's even a local component as well, because there are certain local jurisdictions that are starting to become more active on our issues. So um, that's another uh, facet of my portfolio. Perfect. Thanks, Allison. And before we dig in, one of the things we like to do on the podcast is throw a little trivia uh, to our our guests. And so guessing based on that intro that you spend a fair amount of time on Capitol Hill, is that a, an accurate assumption? Uh, I think that's fair. Yeah, uh, I can't. I'm, I'm not particularly good at trivia, so I'm, I, I want to set expectations on the ground. floor. Fair enough. Fair enough. So <laughs> we've got just a, four questions here to uh, test your knowledge of the the building that's on the top of that hill and and see how well you you know the uh, the U.S. Capitol. So uh, all in good fun. We'll get started with the first question. Where did the first architect of the Capitol, who also designed the building, William Thornton, become an architect? And these are multiple choice. A, the British West Indies. B, Glasgow, Scotland. C, Boston. Or D, he wasn't an architect. He was a physician. Really kicking it off with a tough one. I'm going to go D. That's correct. He was a physician, not the first architect was not actually an architect. Second question. Each state can place two statues in National Statuary Hall. Which woman in her state from the following list is not in Statuary Hall? A. Helen Keller from Alabama. B. Sakakawea from North Dakota. C. Louisa May Alcott from Pennsylvania. Or D. Willa Cather from Nebraska. You thought the first one was hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um... I'm going to go see. Excellent. That is incorrect. Louisa May Alcott is not in Statuary Hall. I gave some really uh, epic tours as an intern, and I was thinking back through (laughs) the statues. (laughs) When am I ever going to use this knowledge? And here we are. (laughs) Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Number three. So this will be an easy one, I think. What is the address of the Capitol building? A, 100 Constitution Avenue. B, 100 Pennsylvania Avenue. C, 1776 Independence Avenue, or D, 1 Capital Loop Drive? A. Correct. Correct. 100 Constitution Avenue. All right. So going for a clean sweep here on number four. Most people know the Capitol was burned by the British troops in 1814. Uh, To what was this in reaction? A, President Jefferson recalling the U.S. ambassador from the Court of St. James in London. B, a law imposing special tariffs on sugar imported from British colonies. C, the United States having attacked the Canadian Capitol building the year before. 
or D, the Declaration Americanizing certain spellings, such as dropping the U in color and harbor? I think it's B. Oh, so close. It was um, C. We attacked um, the, the Canadian capital the year before, but not bad. Three out of four on some pretty uh, obscure trivia. So thanks for playing along. Sure. Craig, I think you've got the first question lined up, right? Yeah, Allison, nice job. I'm not sure I would have gotten... Well, I've got, I would have gotten one out of four, I think. <laughs> uh, um, so, Allison, let's start with the same question that we really started with last year. What topics, whether they're regulations, enforcement, or e even laws, should issuers or stakeholders be most interested in? And has this changed from this time last year? Sure. So one of the really interesting things about working for TransUnion in the government relations department is just that we are really in the center of all things consumer finance. And so that actually provides us with a lot of sort of windows of insight into all areas of the financial ecosystem. Um, and so keeping that in mind, um, we have kind of a, a broad variety of issues that we're covering, you know, starting you know, in on the one hand with data privacy and all things consumer data, the way consumer data is treated, how companies are allowed to protect or profit from or sort of resell that data and what are the sort of political ramifications around that. We also um, follow a lot of the things in the uh, mortgage and housing space. So, you know, the FHFA at the end of last year made a pretty significant announcement regarding uh, the treatment of credit scores and credit reports in mortgage underwriting. So that's something that we're tracking pretty closely. Um, and then finally, kind of on the other you know, end of the spectrum, we also are following uh, the CFPB's announcement that they are going to uh, undergo an FCRA rulemaking later this year. So that's going to be a, a formal notice and proposed notice of proposed rulemaking process. Um, that's a pretty big deal. That's going to touch a lot of areas of TransUnion's business. It's going to also touch a lot of the other players, the lending players in the ecosystem. Um, so we're monitoring that pretty closely. Can you help me understand that one a, a little bit? When you see, say, FCRA rulemaking process, are they putting in place a more divine, defined set of steps than existed previously? Or is this something new that's specific to a particular regulation or rule, rule I guess? Yeah, it's a great um, question. So I guess to back up the FCRA, which is the Fair Credit Reporting Act, is the statute that governs um, credit reporting and, and a lot of the lending ecosystem. Um, and so the Fair Credit Reporting Act was passed by Congress, and the CFPB has the opportunity to um, announce and actually promulgate rules that relate to the sort of operational um guidance around the FCRA. So this this can mean that the this current CFPB can take the language that's written in the statute in the FCRA and expand on its interpretation. So that means it can expand on definitions. Um, it can expand on sort of scope and application. It can um, provide guidance and sort of uh, legal insight into how companies should operationalize the requirements of the FCRA. 
Um, I, you know, that's this current CFPB is, you know, stating that they're doing this uh, for a couple of reasons. They've they've said that it's to provide more clarity to the market. Um, in addition to that, uh, you know, technology and a lot of um, different innovations in the lending space have have created a lot of new opportunities, but a lot of new challenges and a lot of new compliance challenges. And so I think the CFPB is looking to modernize the FCRA in a couple of meaningful ways. Um, so the, you know, the formal rulemaking process at the agency level, um, you know, starts with a notice of proposed rulemaking, then there's a proposed rule and there's a notice and comment period during which stakeholders can comment on the proposed rule sort of cite issues that they see with the rule or opportunities. Um, and then the agency is required to take those comments into account and and publish a final rule. And so it's a long process, um, but that's a little bit of like a 10,000 foot view of what I mean when I say SCI making. No, that was helpful. Thanks for the additional clarification. I want to move into a topic that we discussed quite extensively at this time last year. And that had to do with um, a lot of the back and forth we had about how control potentially would shift in Congress, would it would one house flip? Would two houses flip? <clears throat> Seems like it ultimately ended up where folks thought it would be last year at this time. We hear a lot about the challenges and the growing uh, levels of bipartisanship in Congress, but also between you know the executive and the judicial branch. Is bipartisanship? as challenging as the broader media represents? That's an interesting question. It Bipartisan legislating and legis legislating in general is is really challenging. That being said, you know, a lot of the issues that we work on, we work on in a bipartisan basis, meaning there's agreement on both sides of the aisle. Um, you know, I, I do think that probably the larger must pass pieces of legislation that are you know, that move through the House and then over to the Senate uh, tend to have a more partisan ilk to them. Um, that's just kind of the nature of divided government. Um, you know, Speaker McCarthy and Leader Schumer are, you know, not necessarily singing from the same songbook. And so they're, you know, when they get their own members in line, there are a lot of challenges associated um, with kind of working through their caucus and, and getting the votes that they need to pass, particularly with margins this slim. However, that being said, you know, I think for a lot of the more policy wonky issues, um, there is a lot of broad bipartisan support. There are a lot of members who like to dig into the details and do things that, you know, are, are good policy. You know, I'll just point out the Credit Access and Inclusion Act is a bill that we've worked on for several Congresses, and it affords bipartisan support in the Senate. And we're very close to getting, you know, Democratic co-sponsors in the House. And it takes some doing. It takes, you know, identifying the right members who want to get involved in in issues that make sense for their portfolio, make sense for their their interests. Um, but it but it's definitely done. It's just probably not, you know, it's not as exciting to say oh, yeah, we have this bipartisan bill and it's going to take a really long time to get through both chambers and then maybe in a couple of years make it to the president's desk. It's not that's not as exciting to report on. So um, it's there. It's happening. Uh, but it but it is challenging in, in such a divided environment, for sure. 
Thanks, Allison. You know, generally, how open are officials to different viewpoints? How often and how significantly do they change their mind? I know it's a general question, but uh, I'm just looking for a general answer here. Right. So I think it's it, it's interesting because I think it depends on the legislator. And so I guess I'll just start by saying that it's really rare for a legislator to completely 180. Not not impossible, not, you know, never say never, but every member is coming into Congress and coming into govern with a set of preconceived notions and personal experiences. They might be previously a physician. They might have been in legal practice. They, they can have a whole variety of um, sort of life experiences that they're bringing into, you know, this past year, the first uh, Gen Z uh, member of Congress was elected, and so they're coming in with a whole host of um, experiences that differ from, you know, say the members who have been there for 30 plus years. And so I say that just as a, a preface because I think it's relevant to this conversation. There are certain members who come in and who genuinely, um, you know, have a lot of experience on an issue and they are going to be pretty unmoving as it relates to the public policy that surrounds that issue. It's not to say that they can't be convinced of, you know, making changes or, um, you know, looking for opportunities to improve their ideas, but they, they are pretty sort of set in their ways. There are other members, you know, for example, who have, you know, while they're in Congress, they've become more interested in an issue just by proxy of what's been in their portfolio. And so they actually often look to, you know, either the private sector or, um, you know, other think tanks for subject matter expertise on this topic. You know, one one idea that's coming to mind is the digital identity bill and the concept of digital identity. Um, you know, that's kind of a hot topic up in Congress right now. And certainly those members didn't you know, become members of Congress with a huge amount of expertise in, in digital ID. I mean, many of them, you know, have been around since before that, have been in Congress since before that was even really a concept that was, you know, as universal as it is today. Um, and so I think, you know, it's important to just keep in mind that many members are just really curious and they just really do want to make good sound policy decisions. And they're going to have different processes. Some of them might only sort of consult an inner circle who's on their staff, or others might sort of like broadly look to an industry to, you know, hear consensus and hear what makes the most sense, um, you know, for either their constituency or what they view as sort of like industry improvements. And so, um, yeah, it can just it can just totally depend. And that's kind of, that's kind of the fun part. It's assessing where you can sort of affect change on on the margins or in a piece of legislation that, it, you know, significantly improves it. Thanks, Allison. You made the comment earlier about legislation and how it's not sometimes headline grabbing when it's slow moving or uh, something that's that's a little wonkish. Many of our listeners read the trade pubs and read the government pages in those trade pubs and so see the the real headline grabbing stuff coming out of the agencies or or other places. But I'm curious if you had to list two or three, you know, high level themes where you're seeing a lot of focus from the regulators or, or from uh, anywhere in government that people may or may not be seeing there, what comes to mind? 
the two things really come to mind. The first is data privacy, and the second is AI and you know what Congress is going to do in response to the rising trends in AI. And so I'll start with data privacy. Um, for starters, you know, last Congress, there was the the, Ener the House Energy and Commerce Committee made the most progress that we've seen out of any Congress on a federal privacy piece of privacy legislation, which is not insignificant. Um, this was a bipartisan bill, which is also, you know, to our earlier conversation is 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 really noteworthy. Um, and it was a sweeping federal privacy reg. And a lot of this was also in response to the to the states passing their own versions of a comprehensive privacy bill. And I think, you know, industry pretty loudly has been saying for the past 10 to 15 years, we need a federal privacy standard because complying with a 50 state patchwork, you know, privacy sort of framework is 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 really cumbersome for businesses and really difficult. Um, so Congress did make progress here, but it is nonetheless stalled. The Senate is really not willing to take up their own version. And, and secondly, Speaker McCarthy has signaled that he's not interested in um, taking up the ADPPA, that was the the federal privacy bill passed or passed out of committee last year. Um, so it's politically it's stalled, but it still is 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 very significant. And I think next year it's it's something that could you know actually there could be significant progress on that, um, and that would have impacts on almost every business in every sector. I mean that would be a really really major piece of legislation. Um, secondly. You know, there's a lot of interest in AI, AI governance, um, putting guardrails around this technology. Uh, Leader Schumer has released his AI framework in the Senate, which is not insignificant. Um, you know, framework is different than legislation. So there's a long way to go and there's a lot of details that need to be hammered out. But, you know, the leader of the Senate signaling that this is a top priority for him is pretty noteworthy. Um, and, you know, even in our conversations with members of Congress, concerns around AI are popping up all over the place. I think there's a lot of concerns as it relates to fraud, um, a lot of concerns as it relates to just, um, you know, security and and unintended consequences and sort of understanding the black box that is, is AI um, is... It's top of mind for a lot of members. Now, that being said, I, I don't know if there's enough agreement or enough even understanding at this time to to have any sort of federal privacy legislation around AI. But, you know, it's 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 definitely getting a lot of interest. Building on the, the question of what's getting a lot of focus, I'm curious from a prudential regulator standpoint, you know, in a period like this where there are a lot of kind of economic currents and some degree of uncertainty, how does their agenda or process change uh, when there's there's more economic uncertainty in the system? Yeah, I, I guess my first reaction is that it's top of mind for members. So every, you know, office in Congress that you go into, you know, has its own sort of operation and there's sort of this notorious phone line in every office where constituents can call into their member of Congress about issues that are of concern to them. And there's a lot of staffers who are sort of tasked with managing that phone line and and also the email sort of like constituent mail. Um, and so keeping this, I, I, I give that background because in the past year plus, 
all a lot of these members are hearing are like rising cost of groceries, cost of gas, cost of living, sort of wage stagnation, um, concerns just around where the economy is going and sort of in, in response, like what Congress is is doing to counteract that. Now, I you know, I think given a lot of the a lot of concerns around inflation are in light of like treasury raising interest rates, you know, and if you look to other sectors in, in the mortgage space, origination is really low due in part because interest rates are so high. So, you know, Congress can only do so much about the current economic environment. They can try and put guardrails around certain business sectors. They can try and um, conduct oversight over, you know, different agency activities or different business activities. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a top focus. Uh, you know, I don't, in, in terms of what they're doing about it, I you know, there's nothing sort of tangible that's resulting from this yet. I think folks are kind of just like waiting to see what happens over the next, you know, three to six months. That makes sense. And speaking of over the next three to six months, uh, it's crazy to think about the fact that we're already entering a presidential election cycle. But how how will that change the the focus of some of the the regulatory bodies or the pace of things in DC over the next what is it year and a half? Yeah, it it it's a great question, and so I think it's important to think back to where the margins are in both the House and Senate. Um, you know, every member matters, every vote matters uh, in both chambers, and so keeping that in mind, presidential campaigning takes up a tremendous amount of time. And so, if you are say a member of the Senate or a member of the House, and you've thrown your hat in the ring for you know to run for president. Um, you're going to be spending a lot of time in Iowa. You're going to be spending a lot of time on the road. And so being back in D.C. in order to do your committee work, take votes, um, it's it's going to be a challenge. And, he, you know, the, the Senate and House schedule are definitely going to be impacted by that, depending on who's running where, sort of what the political outlook looks like. Um, and so, I, you know, I think there will be sort of a not a pause, but certainly meaningful legislation will legislating will slow down and it's going to probably boil down to a lot of must pass pieces of legislation. So keeping that in mind, that's like an appropriations bill and the NDAA, which they're working on this year, that's the defense package. Um, and I think that we'll see a lot of committee work in terms of like investigating issues, taking time to look into to dive deeply into subjects, maybe like AI or something similar. Um, but it'll become a challenge as people are kind of all over the country working on their own campaigns. And it's also important to keep in mind that, you know, every member of the House is also up for reelect this year. So they're under similar time constraints. So I hope that answers the the question. It'll it'll be hard. <laughs> it does. And and I'm curious, Allison, you talked about the the proposed rulemaking on the FCRA at the Bureau or thinking about other agencies and bureaus and things. Did do, do they experience some of the same slowdowns in that type of period or do they they go full throttle uh, despite what's going on in election cycles? They I would say they they um, they don't slow down. They don't really respond to the congressional schedule in the same way. Um, so I, I think that we can can expect the same amount of activity out of the regulatory agencies, especially, you know, if there's um, if it's looking like there could be an administration change, agencies actually tend to turn it up a little bit more and become more active because, you know, they feel like they're 
the, their off-ramp is sort of approaching. And so, um, you know, it, it's too soon to tell kind of what direction that will take next year. But if I feel like I've got a finite time, I want to wrap up everything. And uh, yep. every priority that you said you would when you took that position, I mean, it makes sense. Um, it does. Yeah. So I think it, you know, it will it's a little too soon to tell what direction that'll take, but that's typically how it goes. Got it. Good. You know, speaking of the agencies, one of the things we saw, gosh, a, a few months ago was the Bureau put out a letter uh, talking about the benefits of full file reporting and encouraging people to do that. We've talked on this podcast, not just with you, but with many of our guests around financial inclusion and that topic. Uh, you know, how is that changing, I guess, or, or do you see any meaningful progress there? Yeah, so on the Credit Access and Inclusion Act, which has been a, a top priority for TransUnion over the past couple of years, um, there was a lot, there was a sort of discussion around positive only reporting, uh, to which that that's shifted. You know, I think there was a, there were some initial sentiments that positive only is probably better for the consumer, and a lot of our educating and work that we've done on the Hill is, you know, to advocate for the fact that full file is better for the consumer and for a variety of reasons. It sets them up for a product that is more suited for them. It gives the lender a full picture. It just provides more stability to the ecosystem. And so we were really pleased to see that when the Credit Access Inclusion Act was reintroduced as Congress, that it was full file. It maintained that sort of full file nature. Um, you know, I think part of our charge is just making sure that our position, which is more data is better for kind of everyone, um, is sort of widely understood. And, and those details are, are, you know, conveyed to the right elected officials who can affect change in that space. Allison, when you introduced yourself, you talked about your dual mandate of federal and state relations. We've focused almost all this time on stuff happening at the federal level. And I'm curious, regardless of where I might be sitting in the U.S. or internationally, frankly, listening to the podcast, are there things that are happening at the state level or local level that you think are interesting and uh, something people should should read up on or pay attention to? Definitely. I'll uh, talk about two things. The first are state privacy uh, laws, which are um, in becoming increasingly popular and uh, challenging to navigate. So that's the first one. And the second one is actually a lot of states are looking at the use and treatment of medical debt on the credit file. And so that's also something that I want to flag. Um, so I guess going back to data privacy, um, this is not necessarily new news, but it, starting in 2018, California passed its own state privacy bill, which was kind of the first of its kind and and a huge deal for the privacy space. Um, and since then, we've seen several other states create their own iteration of, of what a comprehensive privacy bill looks like. And that can be very challenging for a variety of reasons, just in terms of the way states define different pieces of data. For example, Washington just passed um, its own version last year where it had a more expansive view at what health data is. Um, so previously, health data is sort of like HIPAA-defined data, um, you know, kind of clear-cut between you and your doctor or your medical provider. And the, the definition that Washington took is a little bit more expansive. It relates to, you know, 
data that was incurred at a CVS or, um, you know, sort of like health related activities. And so you can imagine how that would create sort of operational challenges, not only for our privacy team, but also for the products we're selling, you know, the, the businesses that we're in. And so if every state has a different definition of health data, you know, not only is it creating a tremendous amount of work just from a compliance standpoint, um, you know, uh, consumers' rights look differently depending on which state they're in, which is also confusing. And so that's part of the reason why TransUnion supports the passage of a federal privacy standard. You know, we'd like to get to that space um, just so it's a little bit more consistent, um, easy to comply with, and, you know, our obligations to our consumers are clearer. Um, and and secondly, on the medical debt piece, you know, in back in March of 2022, the CRAs announced that uh, we were eliminating up to 70% of the medical of medical debt on the credit file. And so this was a pretty significant decision that the bureaus made in light of the COVID-19 pandemic and sort of looking at medical debt practices, medical debt collections practices, I should say, um, and how those are reported on the file, the length of time that it goes from collections to being reported on the credit file, um, and and just the amount of medical collection sets. So so five hundred dollars or less is no longer reported to the credit file. So um, you know a few states, uh, Colorado, New York, um, are looking at potentially banning all medical debt from the credit file. Um, and you can imagine how this would also create operational challenges if you go to the do you know if you live in New Jersey and go to the doctor in New York where is the medical debt incurred I think it might depend on on the state and so I you know that's something we're monitoring closely um, and there seems to be a little bit of ideological divide about the predictive nature of medical debt and and that's certainly something that's come up at the federal level frequently um, but it's is is moving to the states as well so those are just two topics that I'd I'd pay attention to interesting thank you before we wrap, I'm curious, we've been throwing a lot of questions at you and you've given us a lot of great insights. What have we missed or what else should our listeners be paying attention to? Sure. I, I'd urge your listeners to pay attention to a lot of the agency activity, particularly in the housing space. You know, this administration has identified that housing, both home ownership and rental housing is a, is a top priority. And so, you know, if you look at the CFPB, the CFPB has um, published a lot of reports and made a, uh, had a concerted interest in re the rental housing space and the impacts on tenants. And then if you look to the FHFA, you know, the transition over to from the tri-merge credit reporting requirement to the bi-merge is a significant change that came out at the end of October that didn't get a lot of attention, but really deserves a lot of attention. Um, and so I would just encourage them to pay attention to a lot of the activities and you know, publications that are coming out of these agencies because they are active government bodies and there's a lot to pay attention to. Absolutely. Well, we thank you for your time and you've certainly helped us uh, synthesize, I think, some of the, the key trends because there is, to your point, a lot to pay attention to. So uh, we got a lot of great feedback from this episode last year and Craig, assuming that you and I are invited back for a, a third season of Extra Credit, we'll look forward to catching up again next summer. Absolutely. Could continue the tradition. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Thank Allison. you.